Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I've been thinking a lot about hope in the last few days, what it means to have it, to lose it, to hang on to it in the face of despair. That's what I was thinking about. Then reality barged in and cut straight to the heart of the matter. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. Oh my gosh. That's from a helicopter pilot surveying Lahaina in Hawaii a few days ago. Like Lytton in British Columbia in 2021, it's yet another tale of lives ended and towns destroyed by wildfire. Scientists are drawing a clear line between the risks of these hazards happening and their severity to the fossil fuels that we're burning. And the question, where does hope go in the face of such devastation? on a planet seemingly riven by one climate-linked disaster after another. Rebecca Solnit wanted to talk to me about that. Yes, the noted writer, the historian and activist. She got in touch with me and asked me if I wanted to have a conversation with her about committing to hope as a solution to fighting the climate crisis. And that's what you're going to hear today on What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Not Too Late. That's the name of a new book edited by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutunatambua. Some of their writing is included in the group of essays and interviews, and it's why Rebecca emailed me suggesting that we explore the themes in the book that's subtitled Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. We spoke a few days ago before the world understood the scale of the damage in Hawaii. Rebecca Solnit, thank you for being here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Now, hope is a central theme in this book, and, and in your opening essay, you spend some time talking about that word and what it means in this context. How do you define hope? Well, I want to kind of undefine the way a lot of people think about it, where hope is feeling good, feeling safe, feeling like everything's going to be fine, or optimism. Hope is a discipline, says the great anti-prison activist Mariam Kaba. For me, hope is a commitment to finding the possibilities, to continuing to do your best, to not giving up. And it can coexist with heartbreak, with grief, with all kinds of not-so-easy feelings, partly because it's not a feeling, partly because the historical record shows us lots of people have been in absolutely horrific situations where they didn't feel great and nevertheless persevered. So hope for me is also an awareness that the future is something we're making in the present and a commitment to trying to play a part in making the best future possible under the circumstances. You use that word optimism, and I want to pick up on that. I I know I ask a lot of people who appear on this program about whether they're optimistic in the face of what has happened. 
And some of them say yes. Some of them say, well, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. And in the essay, you specifically say hope is not optimism. Why is that an important distinction? Something that's been really interesting to me over the years is to notice that optimists, pessimists, defeatists, climate doomers are all pretty confident they know what the future holds, and they often speak as though the future has already been decided. And so optimism and pessimism and the rest really get us all off the hook. They don't demand anything of us. If we already know what's going to happen, all we do is sit back and watch it unfold. Whereas if we know that we don't know, and knowing you don't know is the beginning of wisdom and often the beginning of activism, then we also know what we do matters. And I think that's central to hope. What about uh, despair or fear? Are, are those harmful or are they fuel in a way toward activism on the climate front? One thing I've ended up saying over and over again the last several months is I absolutely respect despair as an emotion, but it's really important not to confuse it with an analysis. Something I feel like I run into a lot is people who say, I feel terrible and I'm taking my feelings as an analysis. I'm taking them as a data source. I can't imagine that I can feel terrible and yet it is possible to persevere that there's something worth doing. Despair as an emotion isn't a guide to what's possible. I actually had a wonderful woman say to me, I often despair in my teenagers but I would never give up on them. And I think the other day, Brian Stevenson, in response to a question about hope, he said that his grandfather, who was enslaved, had no material basis for believing he could be free and that slavery could be ended. There was nothing, no rational data that would lead one who was enslaved to believe they could actually achieve freedom. But if he did not have hope, where would we be today? And so I see people in absolutely dire circumstances, including frontline climate community people, whether their island nation is going underwater, they're facing other things, who persevere because for them to give up means essentially lying down to die, deciding their children will starve to death or never have human rights. And it's just been interesting to me, the kind of surrender and the rhetoric of a lot of people around me who are often the people for whom giving up doesn't actually mean facing immediate and direct harm. What about fear? Um, there are some. There is some writing about fear in the book as well, and, and there are suggestions that fear is something that people should embrace. I think that you just have to feel your feelings. But one thing I say, because I've been, you know, having these conversations a lot, is feed your feelings on facts. We put together the book partly because we realized that a lot of people's feelings were based on a misapprehension of the facts. When the facts were, it's not too late, we have the solutions. The great majority of people care and want to see climate action, want to see money spent, want to see the world get changed to respond to the crisis. We can't know the future, but we can see in the past that grassroots movements, ordinary people banded together, and it's not necessarily easy or quick or happens exactly the way that they hoped it would, but it happens. And most of the best things in the world we live in now, rights for women, for queer people, for 
Black people, Indigenous people, people with disabilities comes about because of activism and changing ideas about who matters and who should be included. So you can see that the world we live in has already been profoundly changed. And obviously it is not now perfect and we do not now get to kick back. But it reminds us that if we fight, we sometimes win. If we don't fight, we definitely don't. But and let's talk about where we're at today. Um, I mean, the, the book was compiled over the last little while, came out several months ago. Today, we are looking at yes. widespread wildfire, a record-breaking wildfire season in Canada. Smoke has been blanketing parts of the country and the United States on and off since the, the spring. There has been flooding and extreme heat in parts of Canada and the world. And I'm wondering, in the midst of all that, how do your own words sound to you now? I think for those of us who've been paying a lot of attention to the situation um, and to what climate scientists have been telling us, this isn't really surprising. We knew it was going to get worse if we didn't do enough, and that even if we do everything we should for climate starting tomorrow, that the situation will get worse before it gets better. Of course, I'm a Californian, and since 2017, we've had epic wildfires. It was curious for me to hear people on the East Coast talk about a week of smoke when we've had it for a month at a time. And so this doesn't really change my framework. I I feel terrible about all of it. I felt terrible about a lot of the climate things that were happening last year in 2018 when paradise burned down in California. Was it 2021 where the town in British Columbia hit 121? Yeah, the town of Lytton, yes. Yeah, and then completely burned down. And just because I think I really heard it in your voice, I totally feel what you feel. This is a nightmarish summer. But it doesn't change what we need to do. It just makes it more urgent for me that we do it, that we tell people that there are things we can do. I wonder, though, if, and I think you would probably say no to this, is whether there is a limit to what activism itself can do. And I'm saying that because um, at the same time that we're talking today, uh, the Alberta government just announced that it, that it is suspending development of new renewable energies while it examines, for at least six months, while it examines a lot of issues around that. And Alberta is obviously, it's much of its economy is based um, on fossil fuels. And as larger oil companies say, um, they're, going, they're not slowing down the development of oil and gas projects. In fact, they're going to go ahead with them. And with governments that some may say are moving too slowly, including in Canada, to try to put an end or to fossil fuels or substantially cut them back, so you're talking about the need for activism and you're saying it needs to move faster. And in the face of all the weather that we're seeing, we're still not seeing the kinds of results that I think you yourself would like to see. So what's the answer there? You know, I don't think you stop because you're not winning. And, you know, I wrote a book about George Orwell, among other things, recently. And it was really interesting to be back at the point in the Second World War where the Allies didn't know if they would defeat the Axis. And I don't want to make it a simple good guys and bad guys story, you know, exactly comparable. But, you know, you don't persevere just because you're winning. You persevere because you're committed to try to win whether or not circumstance is with you. 
In the book, there's also an interview with Antonio Juhas titled Defeating the Fossil Fuel Industry. We're talking about an industry that spent decades denying climate change and billions of dollars doing that. It's also an industry that's provided comfortable lives and livings, though, for millions of people, including here in Canada. I'm wondering what you think it would look like to, quote unquote, defeat that industry. I think that they will be defeated because renewables are just a better way to power almost everything we do. Um, I don't know exactly what that will look like. I think we're getting there step by step. I know 25% of the cars sold in California now are electric. I know that renewables are the cheapest form of energy in 91% of the world. I know that the innovations keep getting better for how to do the things we need to do for a post-fossil fuel world. One thing that I find really interesting about the way that a lot of people talk about climate and have for a long time is that what we need to do is a form of renunciation in their version. But I think when we renounce fossil fuel, we're renouncing something that has made our lives worse, most directly by the fact that more than 8 million people a year die from respiratory illness due to burning fossil fuels, that a lot of us live with incredibly unhealthy air and other forms of pollution in water, in food, etc., from fossil fuels, live in smog. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when suddenly fossil fuel emissions went way down in northern India and uh, there were a number of cities where people could see the Himalayan mountains in the distance for the first time in decades. And I believe we could have a world that's a lot cleaner and healthier because we will no longer have the fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel governments weighing in disproportionately on our politics, national and international. Part of the language of austerity is because 25 years ago, we didn't really have a good alternative to fossil fuels. Wind and solar were primitive, expensive, and utterly inadequate technologies for what we needed. And so we're not at the beginning of an energy revolution. We're in the middle of one. What you're talking about will also mean people, especially again in Canada and certain provinces, losing their jobs and their their comfortable livings. What would you say to them? Alberta is such an interesting case in that the fossil fuel industry boomed enormously, as it has in parts of the United States, you know, in the last few decades. And so it does mean people losing their jobs. I do think it's interesting we're constantly called upon to worry about fossil fuel jobs in the United States. We were constantly told to worry about the coal industry jobs. And there was a wonderful statistic in the Washington Post about six years ago that more people worked at the food chain Arby's, which we don't even have out west, than worked in coal. More people worked in museums than worked in coal. We know that doing what the climate requires of us will create millions of new jobs in the renewables industry for electricians, installers, maintenance, all kinds of things like that. And there's been some really good work in the U.S. to transition fossil fuel workers who are often very skilled at this kind of labor to taking on the new work. And, you know, transitions do create job losses and also job gains. But I don't think we can weigh those jobs against the fate of the entire world for the next several thousand years. 
Rebecca, I just want to finish our conversation with this. If you could give people a, a sort of a call to action, a specific thing or things you want people to do, what would it be? One thing we talk about in the book is that the future is always unimaginable. In the year 1973, 2023 was absolutely unimaginable. I don't know what the world 2073 will look like, but I know that everything good in it will be brought about by us engaging with our values, our beliefs, and our commitments. And I just want everyone to remember that the future is not yet decided, and it behooves us for ourselves, for the young people among us, for the people who will be born in 10 and 50 and 100 and 1,000 years, and all the other species, and all the places we love to do this as wholeheartedly as we can. But what, what if someone it's, comes to you and says, what can I do? And I know you've heard this question before, someone who's trying to figure this out. I, I'm actually taking on as my next project, trying to look at all the things people can do, because I don't think anybody's adequately answered that. You know, people can donate money, they can get more involved in their local, regional or national politics, they can join climate groups, you know, and it's happening at every scale from getting your school to put solar on the rooftops or over the parking to participating in international movements or national referendums. I and I've started to try and redeem donating from the fairly low opinion a lot of people have. It's how you transform the work you do in whatever your profession is, whether you're a janitor or a teacher or a banker into work that somebody can do in climate. I also think we always get choices between being against things, being against fossil fuel development, um, I, the Canadian Indigenous-led anti-pipeline movements have been a real inspiration to me in California. And you can protect a particular place, uh, a forest that is taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and putting oxygen back in. So I feel like the answer is there's a huge amount people can do, and we've really been remiss in the climate movement from giving people a good roadmap of all the forms engagement can take and how that can really suit what resources and skills and interests somebody has, what country they live in, um, whether they like protests and getting arrested or absolutely can't do something like that. Um, but there is something for everyone to do. And being an engaged participant in the ongoing political process as a voter or just a resident is also important because politicians are making a lot of the decisions and we need to be more impactful than the fossil fuel industry and the vested interests. Rebecca Solnit, thank you so much for this. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, speaking of hope and inspiration, it's time for another Climate Hero nomination. And this one takes us to beautiful Gabriola Island in the Salish Sea off of BC's coast. What on Earth listener Deborah Ferens emailed to nominate the Sustainable Gabriola Climate Working Group. Every single one of them in their own individual place around the table at Sustainable Gabriola work on things like recycling and recycling initiatives and um, electric 
vehicles and e-bikes and um, shoreline cleanup. So they all bring so much experience and interest and their knowledge of these issues to the table from all the work they do at many other levels. The group is working on a project it calls Climate 121212, and we have one of the four group members on the line to tell us about that. Faye Weller, hello from across the Salish Sea. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. First things first, can you give me a little bit of history of what the group is about? Sure. Um, So Sustainable Gabriola started back in 2009, and it was really uh, a number of us who wanted to work on issues related to sustainability at that point was kind of the word that was used, but I think now we're talking more about climate change, we're talking more about regeneration, and we gather once a month, just people gathering in the community. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the need for more conversations about climate change, and then um, several people will say, I'll do that, and we'll then initiate that. Okay, now let's get to it. Deborah gave us that list, as you know, of the kind of work you're doing. But let's talk about 12-12-12. I'm sure it's not a combination for a lock. What is it? (laughs) So uh, it it is actually based on some um, initiatives that were based on looking for solutions for to wicked problems um, in economics. And we decided let's use that same idea for climate change and on Gabriola. So it's 12 months, um, 12 wicked problems um, or 12 areas, topic areas, and many more solutions. <laughs> um, so that's what the 12-12-12 stands for. I'm, I'm curious to know, what, what do you think is, is the most creative or or unique or even odd solution that you've come up with? Uh, This is an initiative that we um, are uh, have started on the island and we're trying to look at other ways to do it is the circular economy stuff so taking all of the clothes that we throw away and we're trying to turn them into other things including an acoustic sound panel so wow um, (laughs) that's 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 different that's different. Um, another, well, and this one is maybe sounds a little bit less different, but it's really an important and maybe and really challenging thing, which is um, there's no access to community water on Gabriola. And so we're talking about let's start collecting rainwater from all of the different roofs, big roofs that are public buildings. So let's do it from the community hall. You know, let's do it from... We have a commons um, building and and acreage on the island, so let's do it from that building. I love those ideas, uh, and I'm, I'm going to keep that in mind for our acoustics here in the studio. <laughs> Might as well reuse and recycle. Okay, this is <laughs> now, now, Gabriel is a relatively small community. Um, are you sharing the model with other places? Yes. Yeah, so we're we have about four thousand five hundred people on the island, um, and a number of different um, other communities have talked about doing a climate 12, 12, 12. Um, and they've also taken some of the historical um, ideas that we've done. We've, we um, founded a community bus. And so uh, some of the other islands are, are trying to put that kind of thing into place or have put that thing into place. 
Um, we're also gathering from other communities. So there's, you know, there's some great bike paths on Denman Island and we really need great bike paths here. So we're going to, there's going to be a group that will work towards that. Can I just ask you one other question about all of this? It, it, you are a small sure. community, but I'm wondering how, how has it changed the nature of relationships with people on the island? Well, I think a large part is that it um, it's engaged different groups of people. We would have different people show up um, as well as some of the regulars. And so I think it has allowed people from a range of different kind of um, groups on the island to feel comfortable talking about climate change and to actually give people some hope. Because I think we all know climate Grief is is real, and I think what has happened is people now are starting to feel part of the solution. And when you look at the research, feeling part of the solution is one of the biggest things you can do to deal with climate grief. And at the same time, it allows your community to start to be able to prepare for what the changes are going to be um, from climate change as they come. Well, good on you, Faye Weller, and, and the rest of, uh, how do you call them, Gabriolaites? Gabriolans? <laughs> Gabriolans. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Good on you and the rest of the Gabriolans. Thank you for speaking with me. Okay, you're very welcome. It was lovely. Take care. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So I brought along Katie Yu, um, an amazing climate activist from Nunavut. I've met her through various calls that we've worked on um, for campaigns, especially Banking on a Better Future and Climate Strike Canada. Um, and I'll pass it off to Katie. Katie, do you want to introduce yourself and talk about a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, so hi, I'm Katie Yu. Uh, as Ashwarya mentioned, I am a climate activist in Iqaluit Nunavut. I'm part of a few committees and clubs at my school and in my community where we do climate activism work and host activities about climate action. And yeah, I'm definitely passionate about climate activism and climate action, especially as it pertains to the North. Well, hey there, it's Laura, just jumping in here, that first voice you heard is Aishwarya Putur. She's our new youth columnist at What on Earth? And she's invited KDU to appear with her since they're both young climate activists. Aishwarya, who lives in Waterloo and is moving to Vancouver for university in just a few weeks, wants to explore the differences in strategy for young activists in the more urban parts of Canada versus the more remote. So let's get back to the conversation with Aishwarya explaining why she thinks it's important to consider. The reason I wanted to bring this up in the first place is I believe that often at times sustainability and how we address um, any sort of climate solutions is often seen as a monolith, right? But people and places aren't a monolith, and that means our solutions shouldn't be either. 
And I think the climate action that youth put out within urban and rural areas really shows how different our strategies are, how different our movements are. And there's beauty in that difference because that is how we should be approaching climate solutions anyway through um, community-based approaches. So I thought this was a perfect way to kind of delve into that bigger topic and bring about how solutions should be placed in the first place and what this fight for climate action should look like. Voices from rural communities or people on the front lines aren't highlighted as much, and that's simply because whether the resources get there, whether um, their voices are being able to be heard through social media and such, whether they have access to Wi-Fi, internet. Um, There's just so many barriers that I think need to be broken down and are being broken down, um, like people like Katie. Um, So I think that, yeah, this is such an important topic, um, and I'm really, really excited. Well, Katie, uh, let's let's talk about your particular situation. You have been involved in climate action in your high school for a few years what has it been like? Are there a lot of students interested in environmental issues? Yeah, I kind of lead our environmental club right now. So yeah, the past year it has been mainly like me and a few friends and mainly me and one other friend like planning most of the things. And then we have a good teacher staff support as well. But it can be a struggle to actually get people like participating in our activities sometimes. I I hear you organized a climate protest last Earth Day. Tell me what that was like. So yeah, we basically were set up at an intersection uh, and we made one main banner and then a bunch of smaller ones. Well, up north, Facebook is actually a really common way of doing service announcements and things like that. So we made a Facebook post for the protest. And then we basically, we didn't like take up a street or anything. We were kind of just at this building at an intersection and uh, waving our banners, making noise. And yeah, a lot of people like, you know, it's a small town, but that was one of the busiest intersections. So a lot of people did see us and, you know, honk their horns and things like that. I guess one of the struggles was that it was during spring break, actually, because <laughs> it was Earth Day. There weren't as many young people there. It was kind of a small crowd. But yeah, there wasn't like a lot of people there, as I mentioned. But it was definitely a great thing to organize and to see the results of. Um, I, can, can I just yeah, jump in for just a second? I, 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 yeah. ha- I, I have this visual in my mind of you standing on the street corner. And what, there's, there's three of you. It just, it just sounds kind of lonely. Yeah, it was kind of like we had a few more people come in there were like a few people with their kids which was really nice so it was three of us mainly and then I think like in total I don't know (laughs) maybe like 10 in total like passed by stopped by and then there were some media people there Uh, and then all the people you know driving by so like it wasn't that lonely but it was definitely like not the biggest thing Aishwarya, what differences do you notice between the work that you do and the work your friends in smaller communities do? I think the biggest difference is probably the ways in which we do outreach. You know, the first time I heard Katie tell me that they use Facebook as the main uh, source of a source of a way to let people know about their actions blew me away because I will be very, very honest. In the groups that I've worked with, you know, Facebook is a social media platform that we use, but 
not one that we focus on. You know, it's more so like Instagram, TikTok. And so when I listen to kind of the differences between the ways in which activism is run in rural communities versus, or at least so, Katie's community versus the communities that I've been a part of, it's really interesting because, for example, when we make toolkits for climate strikes, when we used to make toolkits for climate strikes back in like 20. 2020, 2021, that was when I was really involved with Climate Strike Canada. I remember that I don't think we even included like Facebook, you know, it was more so it was very, very centered now that I look back around urban communities and around ways in which climate action can be done within urban communities. And that's with the mindset that, oh, there will always be people, you know, walking by. Like when we go out in the street, there will always be people that um, will be asking you questions constantly and that uh, you kind of have larger number of people in your schools for you to conduct workshops to. So it's, it's a very different dynamic, I would say, in terms of strategy and approach. Katie, because you live in Iqaluit, I'm wondering if you can talk about how you engage with Indigenous people in your work. Yeah, I'm not Indigenous myself, so I feel like, yeah, I don't want to speak for anyone, but it is definitely important to, uh, you know, work with Indigenous and Inuit communities and have their input on projects. And yeah, I am part of a few organizations who, you know, do definitely prioritize that. So for example, I'm on the, or I recently joined actually the Nunavut Climate Change Youth Advisory Committee. So we're kind of a committee under the Climate Change Secretariat, which is under the government of Nunavut. So we kind of advise the secretariat and their policies, and we can also plan our own things. So like part of their mandate is they need to have, you know, Inuit participants in that committee. And it's really like beneficial for me too, to like work with these people directly in these committees and groups in my community um, and hear their perspectives on like how their culture and well-being is being impacted because you know obviously it impacts like climate change impacts all of us but you know indigenous and Inuit lifestyles are often impacted more just because of like their ways of life and the traditional activities they've been doing for thousands of years. Aishwari, I'm wondering how your conversations with young people in smaller communities have affected your own approach to climate organizing. I think it's made my approach way more diverse in terms of thinking. It's made me really understand the importance of listening, asking questions, and learning from one another because the place in which you grow up and the ways in which you organize according to the people in your area completely impact the sort of strategy that you're going to put out, right? it's a completely different perspective. And so for me, because I can only look through one perspective because this is the life that I live, um, for me to listen to my uh, activist counterparts and learn from them is such an important experience. Um, And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from them is, I think, a lot of patience, right? And also working with your community. You're not, as an activist, you're not just working for your community, you're working with your community. Activists in rural areas define that the most because they are the ones who are completely doing that. Um, Whether it be Katie, whether it be any of my other friends or activist counterparts. Um, And it's a really, really beautiful characteristic to have as an activist. And I'm glad I've learned that from them. 
Uh, Katie, I, I understand that the one main person you've been working with on climate action is moving on to university next month. That must be kind of sad for you. Yeah, so I've been working with my friend, uh, yeah, Cassidy, her name is actually. Uh, and yeah, she is going to university in the fall, so it is kind of sad, but like, she is actually on our climate change youth advisory committee. You know, she joined while she was still in Nunavut and she can still continue to uh, be on the committee. So that's nice that we can keep working on climate action through that committee with her. But yeah, it is kind of, yeah, difficult to have to like do more things because like her and I planned a lot of things together. But I am hopeful that some of the new grade nines will be interested in climate action things. Let's say you, you've got those grade nines in front of you uh-huh. and, and you're making a pitch to them to, to reel them in and get them involved. To, to, to make the pitch to them about why it's important for youth in smaller communities to be active on climate change. I think it is honestly kind of a tricky pitch to make because like oftentimes smaller communities aren't as responsible. I think, you know, it is a bit different for us because we Although we aren't that responsible, we can see the impacts of climate change through, you know, sea ice changes. We don't see these changes every single day, but we can definitely feel them over time. Uh, So I think it is really important for these impacted communities, you know, even if they aren't as responsible, we still need to be raising our voices against the impacts we are facing. And then I feel like... Isn't it all that much more important for you to be doing that because you're living through the very front lines of this? Isn't isn't that the way people, why young people should be involved? I mean, your lives are changing. Yeah, yeah, I definitely believe that, you know, youth should be involved in climate action because we will be the most impacted going into the future. And because, you know, up north, we are more impacted than other places. So I feel like, yeah, it is really important to have our voices out there. And then it's also, you know, good to have more people coming in because as much as, you know, you can advocate with one other person or three other people, it is really important and oftentimes easier mentally to have people around you. So I feel like it's mutually beneficial if more people are involved. We should probably leave it there, but Katie, I wish you the best of luck in in getting some other people to to be there standing with you uh, as you continue to be active on climate change. And Aishwarya, thank you for for bringing the subject to us and talking about all of this. Katie Yu, Aishwarya Patur, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, when it comes to the conversation about climate change, everyone has a voice, even the poets. We wanted to revisit a story we brought you earlier this year about an event in Vancouver that channels some fiery language and strong emotions. We will not simply tech our way out of climate crises because modern technology does not hold monopoly over innovation. Rather, we give a long-awaited standing ovation to the indigenous peoples who have protected land, air, water since time immemorial. We don't have to imagine far because the imagining is already there in the wisdom. If we only listen, instead of control, assimilate, or be dismissive. This is a time for two-eyed seeing. This is a time for deeper listening to our hearts and to those silenced by the system. Those are the words of Pablo Akira Beimler. He's a Vancouver-based slam poet and activist, and you're hearing him performing to a packed house at his alma mater, UBC. People in the crowd are silent, clinging to every word. 
It's the second annual UBC Climate Slamposium, a meeting of students to share research, activism, and creativity. Pablo likes to weave rhythm and spoken word into the climate justice movement. Slam poetry is rooted in community building. It's rooted in activism. It's rooted in Black civil rights. It's rooted in marginalized folks coming together in like spaces to like share emotions, share like rage, <laughs> share like love, share like all sorts of things that I think are kind of missing. I think in a lot of the spheres that we're in, especially in academia. Student Shagorika Hack also believes in sharing emotion through poetry. She's at the aptly named Slam Poseum, patiently waiting for her turn as poets like Pablo perform. Originally from Bangladesh, Shagarika's poetry is motivated by a love for her country. My own country is experiencing record-breaking summers, record-breaking monsoons, and for you know a country that is like smaller than BC with about 200 million people, it is a very shattering, shattering thing to dwell on because the futures are very uncertain. But Shagorika believes a better world is possible. And when she's called upon to perform, she takes her time exuding confidence. What if, this time, there were no borders founded in violence? What if, this time, we know to center land because we are finally listening to the pains of our landlessness? What if, this time, we let our hearts break open and not only apart. What worlds are waiting for us to return to? What poetry? What kindnesses? What stories must we retire about our lives? What othered stories can we tell? We know our worlds are ending because they have ended for so many before and around us already. The apocalypse is unjust by design. What are the languages and systems in your skin? How can we create new ones with each other? Thank you. Her performance moves the audience, the applause rises, then so do the people, on their feet, cheering her. It's this type of response that keeps Shagarika going. For her, poetry can be transformative, therapeutic, and a climate solution. This essay I return to a lot, which is Audre Lorde's Poetry is Not a Luxury, and she writes a lot about how poetry isn't just about like the written word, it's a matter of survival. Poetry, I think, it's a space to imagine new worlds. And I think that is so essential in, in this fight for a livable planet. And I think of this quote in that essay where she says that the white fathers taught us, I think, therefore I am. But the black mothers in each of us, the poet whispers, I feel, therefore I can be free. And I return to that a lot because I think it is the love, the care, the grief, the joy we hold for our dying planet that will help us move towards more just, more compassionate, more livable futures. Time now for a couple of stories making climate news this week. Ontario Premier Doug Ford has defended his government against an Auditor General's report on controversial plans to take environmentally protected land out of the so-called Greenbelt. 
The report said the government favored certain developers. Ford is rejecting the Auditor General's recommendation to reconsider the project. The Swedish government is facing criticism after announcing plans to build at least 10 new nuclear reactors in the next 20 years. It says they're needed to meet the soaring demand for electricity. Environmental specialists say the proposal is too expensive and still won't meet the country's energy needs. And that's all for us this week. This show was put together by associate producer Daniel Piper, producers Matt Muse and Molly Siegel. This week, Edziu Lovren is our engineer. Rachel Sanders is our senior producer this week. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.